Welcome to this new thinking for a new world podcast of the Talberg Foundation. Can COVID act as an accelerator for development in Africa? Just like everywhere else, African countries are having to deal with the fallout from the corona pandemic. But the challenges in Africa are different, as are the solutions. In this episode, Alan Stoga talks to Ivona Akisoyer, the mayor of Freetown, and Carol Wainana, COO at the Africa 50 Infrastructure Fund, as they shine their light on the consequences of the pandemic for Africa, as it is forced to rely more on itself. So far, Africa has had a relatively mild bout of COVID, although the WHO clearly worries that things are about to get worse. What plagues Africa may not be the new coronavirus, but an industrial world that is closing down, a new Cold War, this time between China and the West, severe climate change, and probably most importantly, the urgent need to grow and develop faster. But let's start with the pandemic. Mayor Ivan, how has the pandemic changed your work relative to all of the other challenges that you face? The, the pandemic has accelerated um, some things. The economic slowdown, certainly the impact on the economy is probably the most significant feature of the pandemic for us. Um, we had our first case on the 31st of March. We're now 20th of July. So just a few months in, still 66 deaths in total nationwide um, and less than 1,800 cases. So that doesn't sound like, you know, much more than you'd be expecting to happen from death by malaria or any of the other ailments which plague us um, as a nation already. But what is clearly different is borders are closed. Businesses are shutting down. Counterparts in other parts of the of the world have their businesses closed. So um, the economic the economic fallout is has been the defining feature of this pandemic. But then when you look at other challenges, informality of a city like mine, Freetown, which is obviously a feature of you know, having the currently low GDP that we do. Informality in Freetown is seen in three major aspects of our way of life. Informality of housing, informality of employment, informality of transportation. Informality of housing, where in a city of 1.2 million people, 35% live in informal settlements, what are otherwise known as slums. Transport, largely over 80%, is from low single use, low occupancy transportation. So there's no mass transit. Um, and when it comes to informality of employment, high unemployment rates, but also a lot of employment, which is in the informal sector. So open markets. Why am I saying all this? Because we're dealing with a pandemic where your first measure, protective measure is physical distance, hand washing, two things which in the setting where informality is a key feature are very difficult to achieve. So the pandemic has had a significant impact economically, but it's also really put a spotlight on our vulnerability to pandemics um, and our inability or the challenges with responding to something as simple as establishing physical distance, hand washing, and any sort of concept of a lockdown 
where living day to day is a feature of life for most people. So yeah, it's been, it's been an eye opener. Our response has been to accelerate some of the uh, um, interventions that we've been planning as part of our very ambitious three-year Transform Free Time project. It's been an eye-opener. Um, and I think the isolation, which we're seeing across the world, the turning inwards, is also a real wake-up call. Carol, you help lead a regional institution in Africa that aims to modernize infrastructure. Mary Avant has just described the impact on her city and her country. Clearly, this pandemic has been an enormous economic challenge, is an enormous economic challenge to the region. How does it affect the vision that you have for Africa? Even pre-COVID, um, Africa still needed massive investments in infrastructure, uh, which is actually what we do is mobilize um, capital both in, from inside of Africa and outside of Africa for, for infrastructure. Um, I think post-pandemic, uh, this is going to be an even bigger urgent need. But then a couple of things, obviously, that have become even more obvious during this time is um, particularly the social infrastructure parts, you know, water, health, sanitation, which we typically haven't done as an organization. So one of the things that we're doing going forward that's been very much driven by this pandemic and reflecting on the needs of our shareholders, who of course are African governments, is first of all diversifying our strategy into social infrastructure um, so that we can expand our scope, uh, investment scope into health, water and sanitation. Um, but we're also looking at ways in which uh, we can help uh, governments uh, using something we're calling asset recycling to be able to give some funding back to government that they can use both for the infrastructure they need, uh, but also for their COVID-19 needs. Governments have borrowed heavily for some of the infrastructure they already have um, that's complete. And um, so they've basically tied up capital in state-owned infrastructure assets. And Africa 50 and other investors are now saying uh, what we can do to support you post the pandemic uh, to free up capital that can be plowed back into new projects and your special circumstances of COVID is um, concession out this infrastructure to us. And so basically we pay the government for the infrastructure, we get the right partners to run it, and they still get um, money back for that. So although these were ideas that we were mulling, with, mulling over pre-COVID, they've definitely been accelerated by the pandemic and there's much more openness and willingness to move forward with these uh, projects um, as of now. Let's stay with economics for a minute. The IMF recently said that this is the worst and most global recession since 1870. We've seen governments in North America, in Europe, stand up enormous financial programs to try to mitigate the impact of those recessions. We haven't really seen a global effort. My concern and my question is that, and following on a bit from what you just said, Carol, is whether you, Mayor Yvonne, Carol, have confidence that the rest of the world is going to help Africa or forget about Africa as they cope with their own problems in the coming year, two, three, four years. Um, I'll go first. 
I think one of the things I ended on just now was the turning inward. Um, and there will be more of a challenge. I mean, we're already seeing um, shifts in direction, in language with COVID, but maybe this also poses or creates an opportunity. Um, there's a feature of this response which requires us to look at things from a local level. Um, it was interesting to hear Carol just talk about the appreciation of the need to diversify and have more of a focus on social infrastructure, water, health, sanitation. Um, the other way you can look at this social infrastructure is as it being part of, especially the water and sanitation, is as it being part of a green economy, a circular economy. And in the same way, um, some of the ideas that were being thought about at national level by Africa 50 have been accelerated by the pandemic at a local level, a city level. We have worked, admittedly, with some significant investment um, from development partners such as different in the EU. And in so doing, one of the potentials that we have as a city government is to see how these interventions can be entrepreneurial, enablers of entrepreneurship. So when it comes to water, 47% um, of our city had access to running water before the pandemic or rather 47% didn't have access to running water before the pandemic. That was sort of magnified, amplified within our informal settlements. We've provided, because we've needed to, because the pandemic has made it a life and death matter, and therefore it's pushed us to do so, we've moved forward with providing rainwater harvesting systems within these communities. These, these rainwater harvesting systems need to be managed that creates an opportunity for some level of community dynamic and engagement, which can be maintained beyond the pandemic. Urban farming is something that we've introduced or in the process of introducing because of our concern that during the lockdowns, which thankfully never really materialized, we didn't have anything more than a three-day lockdown, but we could see that many people would not be able to survive. So we have a program which is introducing urban farming into informal settlements, benefiting 1,000 households. That's, that's sustainability. That's building on something which we can scale up and grow and make a contribution to the economy. When it comes to sanitation, we were already in the process of building a locally driven, community-oriented um, youth employment um, enhancing waste management system where we use tricycles, which we've given to youth groups, and then we support them. We support them with business skills, with, you know, sort of helping them market uh, to householders. We put the enabling environment there, the enforcement and so forth. Um, where I'm going to with this is, yes, biggest recession since 1870. Um, do we sit back and be the victims as Africa? The sort of work that Carol's talking about with Africa 50 gives an opportunity for us to have investment coming back at national level. But maybe the challenge that I will throw to, to um, Carol, and we're definitely going to have to talk after this conversation, 
is where do we go to in terms of subnational investment? Because the pandemic, climate change, the economic downturn, all of this is going to drive more movement from rural communities to cities. How does, how do we as Africans ensure that there's investment coming to city governments to respond to this? So Carol, to focus the question, uh, we know that foreign direct investment is slowing down everywhere. We see a lot of preoccupation in national capitals in North America and Europe with their own problems. We don't hear anyone talking about uh, the need for to, to, to organize capital for Africa. Um, without capital, nothing's going to move. I think because there's less external pressure on the continent now than there has ever been, uh, I think we are beginning to see African countries coming together to figure out how they're going to solve their problems, perhaps with a slighter level of urgency, openness, and willingness to work together than we've seen before. So even at the EU level, um, although people are often skeptical about how much you can do with these um, and with you know with, with with that institution, I think they truly are looking into you know more commercially in the future. How can they speed up trade and trade and investment agenda, and how can they attract? Um, capital into into Africa, um, but I think the the biggest uh, move is trying to mobilize local capital. Local capital, I mean, internally within within the continent, and, and there is a lot of it. There's a lot of money sitting in pension funds um, that isn't necessarily being invested in the right things on the continent for commercial return. Um, and there are lots uh, growing numbers of uh, private institutions that are not investing uh, beyond borders, even though they can. Some are. Um, I mean, you, organizations like Dangote uh, have moved out of Nigeria and started to invest uh, in other countries of the continent. So I think their first their first mission is to mobilize local capital from institutional investment, and then obviously. Um, uh, basically drive Pan-African trade, uh, which has not happened effectively for a very long time. Um, so, I, you know, I'm from the conversations I'm hearing, um, I'm more positive than ever before that the crisis we're in will actually accelerate the implementation of the African Continental Trade Agreement and uh, put us in a position where we can begin to um, at least solve some of our own problems with regard to capital and trade um, without necessarily you know, each individual country is trading with a uh, foreign nation and not being able to trade with each other. But maybe a couple a couple of other things that I think will be opportunity that will be, again, accelerated by um, this crisis. Um, I mean, the global supply chains have been disrupted uh, by COVID-19. Um, Countries are more focused on solving their own problems and fighting trade wars with each other. Uh, but in the long run, they will still need, um, you know, the, the raw materials and commodities that they typically would buy from Africa, whether that would be, you know, cocoa from Cote d'Ivoire, gold from Ghana, diamonds from Congo, um, etc. So we do think that in the end, these, these value chains will probably emerge stronger post-pandemic and potentially put Africa in a fairer position vis-a-vis um, -vis those global value chains than happened pre-pandemic. Now, that, that will take time, but I think 
if there is a time for uh, making that a fairer uh, negotiation, I think we have the opportunity to do that. And, uh, the hope is that we are going to see more of that going forward in the future. And I would say the second area is agriculture, since uh, we still have 60% of uh, the world's remaining arable land, uh, Africa can become the um, bread basket of the world. And hopefully there's a there's a greater openness to looking at how we can develop the agribusiness and agricultural value chain that enable Africa's um, agricultural um, business to be much more global and bring in much more capital um, into the continent for that. Carol, your points were really well well made. Even though global supply chains have been disrupted, um, that there would still be a need for raw materials and commodities, um, and that the value chain, our uh, um, um, Africa's sort of control over the dynamics around that value chain would be stronger post the pandemic. And she also talked about the breadbasket of the world, Africa's opportunity and potential to be that, um, which I agree with. Certainly. Uh, one of the things I would um, say, Carol, and I don't know um, if this is something that has been, you know, like on your radar before. My my challenge, the challenge I see is the gap between national governments who have these conversations with, you know, organizations such as Africa 50. You know, conversations would make a lot of sense. Uh, but then when it comes down to the operations of it, you know, to make a, a, a continent a breadbasket, you have to make localities, you have to make villages, you have to make towns, you have to make plantations, you have to come down and work with people. And what I feel is, is part of Africa's challenge has been the gap between the capacity at national government level and local government level. And, and for me, certainly a driver of development has the drivers of development, whether it's investment in education, whether it's investment in health, whether it's sanitation, which feeds back into health, it feeds back into your tourism potential, all of these things. These are local government issues. And there has been, it feels, on the continent, a failure to effectively decentralize and to ensure that local governments are capacitated. So the journey to development, I feel, has been stunted badly affected by this, you know, this piece. And as we go beyond the pandemic, I, I really would love to hear your thoughts um, as to how you've considered, where you've considered the role of subnational governments who are closest to where this change needs to happen. Yeah, you know, I've, I think it's a good question and actually opens up, um, I think, a much larger discussion. You know, we all wear many hats. So as a, as a mother and a citizen of Kenya, um, I'm also an angel investor in small businesses in my country. I mean, obviously, I see the people in the village where my mother lives. And so I recognize, as you suggest, that there are so many levels uh, of stakeholders that need to be involved in order for anything to be delivered. And so you are working at a subnational level. I'm, I'm working at a pan-African level, mainly with uh, policyholders, because, you know, they are my shareholders. You know, it's the finance ministers in the countries who have invested in Africa. So I completely agree that um, ho hopefully what this um, pandemic also accelerates is not just dialogue between the various levels 
and the delivery vehicles within government, you know, both national, subnational, pan-African. Uh, and maybe that will be even more so now that we are not just dealing with um, uh, bilateral funding or funding that comes from outside of our, of our continent. Um, if, if I think about Kenya, for example, which is, of course, my country and the one I'm most familiar with, 80% of the companies are SME. Actually, 98% of the com companies are SME. That's a whole different level in terms of how they drive uh, the economic and social development of the country uh, compared to anything we're trying to do at a national or pan-African level. They contribute 30% of jobs every year into the economy, and they are already 3% of GDP. If you disconnect what you do from that group, um, you, you really cannot drive the economic and social development of our country. So I hear you that, um, you know, there, there needs to be uh, a way for the various stakeholders that are able to do the different levels of implementation to be able to be enabled and empowered both in terms of policy, capital, uh, skills and capability um, and enablement. And I'm not sure that that happens effectively right now. Um, and of course, that is probably will vary country by country. So it, we should um, learn from where it's being done better and see what, what might be the lessons that can be accelerated post the pandemic. And, and I think, um, I mean, the, the sort of matrix um, that you've just painted, the, you know, the picture of the Pan-African, the national, um, the subnational down to the village and across that the private sector, whether it's a global corporate or it's a national, you know, business or it's an SME, um, you know, sort of running alongside and, and it's like you say, it's how do we make sure that the interdependencies, the influences, the feedback loops between them are, um, operating effectively, um, the, the, the enablers, are provided that there aren't blocks, you know, being put in the way of SMEs, either by national governments or subnational governments. How do we on this is this is the unlocking of the potential of Africa, you know, making sure that all the pieces um, are are functioning as they should. Um, and I, I I suppose you know you you sort of you made the proposition that we see where it's working best and then we learn from it. But that's a very that's a very big statement. So um, the we there is a question mark. Who's the we? You know, who takes the leadership? Who makes sure the learning is done? Where is the platform created for the um, good example to be seen? Um, there's some big questions here, but these are at a level questions that we need to unpick in order for us to see the change that our continent badly desires or badly requires. And, and maybe COVID is going to provide us with that moment. Africa has an incredibly young, exuberant, demanding population. How do you make sure it helps Africa in the future? I do think that one of the things that Africa has going for it um, always has, and hopefully post-pandemic becomes an even bigger driver, um, is uh, uh, our youthful uh, population and our youthful workforce. Uh, I think they project that Africa's population will double um, by 2050 to 2.2 billion. Even today, you know, 60 to 70 percent of Africa's population is youth, and this will continue to grow. So, you know, how do we make this, uh, you know, a huge advantage for the for the continent going forward? 
I think, you know, one of the areas that I see as a potential, and I think there are already a few uh, initiatives in this space already, is, is agriculture, is combining the fact that we have, you know, 60% of the arable land, uh, food security issues across the across the continent, but also across the world. And this budging youth population that uh, potentially, um, if we found a way to leverage them across this industry, in, in the agribusiness industry, uh, could be, you know, increased productivity and potentially, you know, help the, the, uh, the continent be able to not just solve the food security issue, develop its agribusiness, but also, you know, continue to contribute to feeding the world. So the, I think there is one area where the energy of the youth can be harnessed. Um, and then I think the two other areas might be innovation and manufacturing. Um, we've talked about the fact um, that in many of our countries, it's the small and medium-sized industries and entrepreneurs that are driving economies. And I think this will continue to trend going forward. Uh, and so it, it is our youth who are coming up with the creative ideas for how to solve problems with and with with the small enterprises, um, and so that will be, I think, an area that we need to enable going forward, which w- will make Africa unique um, compared to other countries on the continent. Um, and then again, uh, in the technology space um, as well, um, Africa does not have the same limitations in new technology um, that some of the more traditional Western countries have done and, um, and continue to drive initiatives such as, you know, the drone technology we're seeing in Rwanda that's used for delivering medication, um, the mobile money and digital payment system that we've seen in Kenya. So, you know, all of these things are enabling youth and enterprise. And I think we'll continue to be big drivers for our economies going forward. And the good news with technology is it crosses borders. And if, if, if this pandemic has shown us that our borders are becoming uh, more limitations than enablers. And so, so hopefully the combination between a budget youth population, if they can be leveraged in the right way, um, enable technology, um, which we can fast track and leapfrog ahead, ahead of the population, and then solving some of our own big issues um, and the world's issues like food security, etc., can all be combined um, um, things that the continent drives. What do young people need to have a reasonable chance at success in this world? So um, I think there's uh, there's a need for investment um, and creating the space. So yes, we've got um, a very young population, um, but we can't assume that they're going to fulfill their potential without making sure that we're investing. I mean, for example, in Sierra Leone, we have one of the highest maternal mortality rates in the world. Many of those people who die are, are teenage girls. Um, that's youth. Um, we have a life expectancy of 52 years. Um, the reason that is there is because there's, you know, that's an average. Many of the people who die are also very young. That's youth. Um, in order for us to make the most of this youth bulge, um, and the optimism and the, the passion, we also need to create an environment in which they can thrive. So investments in education, investments in skills, investments in healthcare, investments in sanitation, and a space, and I come back to local government because I believe that's a space which is easier for youth, young people to access 
in terms of building their creativity and their capability. But of course, the private sector, which Carol had mentioned before, industries where youth can be engaged in. But I would just say in closing that our, our youth potential in some way is like our natural resource potential. It's there. If it's not properly harnessed, we will not as a continent get the dividend from it. But I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic and I'm hopeful that we will do as that matrix that was painted earlier by Carol, that we'll join those dots, we'll get the pieces working, that there'll be more and more people on different, taking the Pan-African route on different parts, of, in different parts of the continent, in different countries, in different cities, looking to ensure that we make the changes that are needed. Thank you, Mayor Yvonne. Thank you, Carol, for everything you're both doing for Africa and for this conversation with the Telberg Foundation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Sorry it was so difficult. Fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Thinking for a New World podcast. We welcome your comments and please subscribe to other episodes in the podcast app of your choice. This podcast was made possible with the generous support of the Stavros Niarchos Foundation.